Starting in 1984, you could buy Michael Jordan's Nike shoes with the hope and the expectation that you could, quote-unquote, be like Mike. You know how the song goes. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move. I dream I groove like Mike. Following Jordan's inspired example, so many kids were on the basketball court. Game clock winding down. Everything's on the line. The season. The championship. And they're forced to take the final dramatic shot. And, of course, because many kids were not Michael Jordan, it didn't always go in. So many championships were lost on the playgrounds. Even O'Harder was trying to dunk like Jordan. Dude had hang time, but all I ever had was just time. At least according to my uber cool Casio calculator watch, ladies. So the idea of be like Mike, while a fantastic marketing hook, was not going to be a reality, or at least my reality, even when I rocked sweet Air Jordan 1s. Now, unless I had a quarter, for a quarter, an actual, physical, economic quarter, not an NBA quarter, I could play NBA Jam. I could leap into the heavens and bring down an earth-shattering dunk. I could launch threes with smooth peanut butter ease. Sometimes if I hit enough shots, I'd start to heat up like Jiffy Pop. Vicious, classic New York City Knicks defense. I could elbow and push and shove my opponents. Eat hardwood. This quarter was an investment in NBA fun. And so, when I discovered Rayan Ali's NBA Jam, this book on the classic arcade game from Boss Fight Books, I'm like, yo, I got feelings. I got experiences. And thankfully, so does he. And we're not alone. As you'll hear, his journey to document NBA Jam included talking to DJ Jazzy Jeff and Shaq and the developers and so much more. Like us, they have experience and feelings about NBA Jam. I'm grateful that he wrote this book so we could have the following conversation. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy Yunan, and the second player who will be joining me, Boom Shakalaka, is Rayan Ali, author of NBA Jam. Yo, that's fresh. A book on NBA Jam. That's tight. Hello? Hey, is this Sammy from Toronto? We have an interview. Of course we do. Of course we do. Hey, man, I was expecting your call. How you keeping? I'm good. I'm hanging in there, so <laughs> as best as I could. This is just all so strange, man. Like, internationally, this is happening. And yeah, over here, like, I've been working. This is my fourth week of working from home. It just feels so weird, you know? Yeah, it's a weird, like, displacement. Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah, and the... the and what makes it even worse is it's not like, oh, you know, we can look forward to this day. It's like, no, every day it keeps getting extended. Yeah. Now I'm reading like, oh, maybe one year. Yeah. Like no. maybe life will order. Yeah. It's like, okay, wow. Yeah. That really escalated. It went from like one week, two weeks, two months. Yeah. Now a year. And, and I mean, who knows? So maybe this is the new world we live in is where like nobody gets to actually, you know, meet each other. Yeah. We just so. do like Halloween parties with Zoom or something now. Look at my costume. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's what I've been doing with some friends. Like, I've been talking to them over Zoom, and it's it's fun. It's not the same, though, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you just want to – you want a human connection, a human being, and there's no human being. It's yeah. Just image on the screen. So it's real weird, man. It's real weird. It yeah. is super weird. So just to um, kind of um, set the tone, like, 
I'm more on the NBA side of the house than the video game side of the house, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah so I know absolutely. you've done kind of a broad range of interviews as well on both sides. Yeah, thank you for the heads up. I will say I was super out of the loop on the current season when all this, uh, even before it all went under. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to current day team stuff, I'm like way behind. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when it comes to 90 stuff, absolutely. That's what I'm here for. Yeah, yeah. no, this sounds great, man. I'm, I'm happy to talk about any and all of the above and I can keep it pretty clean. So no, I appreciate the heads up, man. Thank you. No worries. So let's get into your really cool book. So your book obviously is NBA Jam. Are you surprised that a game released in like 1993 is like still popular and beloved after like almost 30 years now. Like, cause you dropped this book and now all these people want to talk to you about NBA jam and like old school NBA. Right. And like, are you surprised that there's still this ongoing love affair, even though it has been almost 30 years? Man, that's a great question. I would say that I'm not too surprised, honestly, because you know, when the love is there for something, the love is always going to be there. Like you can find communities where people are still talking about, let's say, old cartoons or old wrestling clips or old video games. I mean, retro gaming is so huge now. So I don't, I'm not sure I would say I'm too surprised. I'm really, in, I'm excited by the fact that so many people have such positive memories. But, you know, NBA Jam made a billion dollars back in the day. Mm-hmm. And considering that Jurassic Park was so huge then and it made, NBA Jam made three times as much as Jurassic Park did. And Jurassic Park, we still, of course, talk about all the time. There's Jeff Goldblum memes. There's all kinds of things out there that are still in the culture. I know that if, like, you know, they love Jurassic Park, let's say, that much, I'm certain they're going to love NBA Jam that much still. So, you know, I know that so many people, you know, if you go on Twitter and you go, like, let's say you look up NBA Jam by recent, you'll see people all the time saying, oh, when's NBA Jam coming back? They need to make a new NBA Jam. NBA Jam, whatever happened to NBA Jam? Do you remember (laughs) NBA Jam? I remember NBA Jam. (laughs) So people keep going and going. So the fact is that it's still out there, I mean, uh, EA Sports, who released the most recent version of NBA Jam, mm-hmm. if you go over to their NBA Jam page, which they've abandoned years ago because they last released an update in, I think, 2011, 12, something like that, mm-hmm. there's still people commenting on the last Facebook post, hey, guys, are you guys going to update the rosters? Where's NBA Jam? Yes. So there's still all this affection out there. So I'm, in some ways, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm particularly surprised by it, but it's really exciting to know that my gut instinct was right, that people would still really care and they'd still really identify with it. Because that stuff still sticks out. I mean, NBA Jam has so many things going for it. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, yeah, it's, it's no shock that, like, after all these years, people still want to care to learn about it. In the same way that if I bet if somebody wrote, like, a book about, let's say, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 or Super Mario Brothers or something, they still want to learn about that because I really do think NBA Jam is at that high echelon of, like, you know, the top, you know, 50, 100, whatever games of all time. NBA Jam definitely has a spot up there. Yeah. And even for the book, like, you interviewed, for example, uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff. You interviewed Shaq, Glenn Rice, um, a mixture of, like, uh, established and well-known, recognized people. And sometimes when you approach a famous person like that to be in a book or to do an interview, they're kind of reluctant or they don't want to talk about this topic or these kind of things. You know what I mean? Like, you'll always see a lot of nonfiction books. I couldn't get this person. I couldn't get that person. But when you approach these people, were they super excited as well to talk about the game? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the really great things about NBA Jam is that there's all this positivity associated with it. Like, let's say even, you know, you look at Mortal Kombat, another game by the same company, another huge uh, arcade game. That even has, even for as beloved as it is, Mortal Kombat has, like, some negativity there. Mm -hmm. Like, in the way of, like, oh, it's too violent, 
or I didn't like this aspect of, you know, the, like any kind of aspect of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with NBA Jam, you don't really have that. So, yeah, whenever I approach these people, I was kind of a shot in the dark. Like, maybe DJ Jazzy Jeff will say yes, maybe he won't. i got to try him. And, yeah, most of them were super enthusiastic and mm-hmm. willing to talk about it. And DJ Jazzy Jeff, you know, was so, like, I could tell that he genuinely really loves NBA Jam and being involved in the whole saga. Like, he was really thinking about his answers to these questions and, you know, giving me good material. And the same thing goes for Shaq. I mean, so it took me about, I'd say, five, six months, maybe maybe, maybe a little bit less than that, but uh, maybe even a little bit more. Uh, but to track down Shaq was definitely a lot of work. So when I finally got him, I was like, okay, I don't know how he's actually going to respond to this. I mean, I'm currently, like, still kind of a no-name author. You know, how's he going to respond to this? But his love for NBA Jam is so much so that, you know, he's quoting Tim Kitzrow. He's saying boom shakalaka. He's talking about Chris Mullen. He talks about how much he loves to shoot threes. And, I mean, this is, of course, decades removed from NBA Jam coming out. So it's still so vivid in people's minds. I mean, Glenn Rice. Glenn Rice, out of all the people I talked to, was maybe, like, the real, the most diehard NBA Jam fan in terms of the, the circle of, like, more notable people. Because he was talking to me about big head mode. He was telling me he was staying up until 3 a.m. playing this game. I mean, he used to uh, wait in line back in Miami. Uh, when 993, when the game came out to play it. So, like, he still had all that passion for it after all these years. So NBA Jam, like, really resonates with people. I mean, they associate it with the fun time of their life, and it still holds up when you go back and play it. Mm-hmm. It isn't one of those games you go back and look at it and, like, okay, this isn't actually all that good. NBA Jam is still really fun to play, yeah. and it's still so visually striking. So, yeah, the, the, the reception was great. So, I mean, I was just like, I'm just going to try these guys. And thankfully, I was able to get so many of them. And even so, the people that I didn't get, like like they said, they I never heard anything bad about NBA Jam, or like they may have just like not responded to my email. But anybody who I interacted with, almost always had something nice to say about it. So, yeah, man, people still love NBA Jam, and it makes me so happy. I love the game too. I was always a big fan of the game long before I did this project. So mm-hmm. it's really exciting from that aspect too. Yeah, I forgot about Big Head Mode until I came across it in your book. I played Big Head Mode a couple of times, obviously, back in the day. Mm-hmm. But you forget about it just because yeah. the time goes by. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and it blew my mind that, uh, yeah, they wanted to make Big Head Mode the, the, de- the default mode for the game at one point, which would have been so strange. I think that would have actually really hurt NBA Jam. Yeah. All you had was Big Head Mode all the time. But as a as a novelty, as that secret uh, that they had in the game, I think it was really good for it. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing too with um, Shaq and his love of video games is he kind of now represented the the new guard of uh, NBA players that were coming in, uh, because you had the old guard, which was like Magic and Larry Bird and Michael Jordan, and these were not necessarily video game type players and stuff. They were just starting to get the shoe contracts and the coat contracts and things like that. Um, but with Shaq and especially the Orlando Magic, that 90s team with Nick Anderson and Penny, it kind of represented this new guard. And now we have like NBA 2K tournaments and we have all these players, especially during this lockdown, playing video games. And that Shaq was the one that kind of gave it that legitimacy and kind of ushered in that new era of NBA. Absolutely. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things right now, if you go see, like, let's say you go see somebody on Twitter or Instagram or wherever, like a famous NBA player playing a video game, it's cool, but it isn't that crazy of an image. Like, it isn't that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. But things were so different back then, and the perception of video games was so different back then. But, yeah, I really loved hearing about the Orlando Magic all getting together to play the game. Like, that's just such a cool visual to me, like that classic Magic squad getting together in a hotel room and, you know, exchanging lots of money, spending mm-hmm. the time together. Yeah. I mean, they could go out, they could be doing anything, but they're, they're playing as themselves in NBA Jam. 
I mean, that was just such a great visual to me. So yeah, so Shaq is definitely one of the real video game fans out there from that, you know, from that, that 90s scene that I've, uh, I've come across. I mean, he talked to me about how he started off with double dribble, then NBA Jam came along and he decided that NBA Jam was cooler than that. But then when I talked to him on the phone, I was like, okay, what other kind of games are you into? So we talked about Mortal Kombat a little bit. We talked about Punch-Out. I had to ask him about Shaq Fu, which yes. was not the best game, but he was like, he was very proud of it. He's like, don't you worry. I made, like, he kept implying that he'd make, that he did very well for himself with Shaq Fu, even though the reviews weren't good. So mm. Shaq's always been a video game guy. And there's pictures going back to the 90s of Shaq at his, uh, in his house playing on NBA Jam cabinet. I mean, there's actually a video interview out there of Magic Johnson and Shaq playing NBA Jam together. Oh, wow. Um, which is crazy. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I got to send that on over to you. Yeah, uh, we, From back in the day, this was this, this amazing find that somebody, that an NBA fan found. And yeah, and then Magic interviewed him right next to, interviewed Shaq right next to his NBA Jam machine. And it was just like, well, this is crazy. I mean, this is like 93, 94. Like, this is a, it's totally different from how it is now. So Shaq is definitely part of a, a different, different guard. And yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I never really thought about how he was one of the big pioneers there. Yeah, because like you said, even in the book that the NBA initially was kind of reluctant to kind of give the license, to sell the license, and mm-hmm. they didn't really kind of know what this video game thing was. And as you alluded to in your in what you were just saying, the video games, especially arcades, had that kind of negative connotation, right? New York, uh, I think, was it, was it New York City or New York State where pinball games were illegal, I think, until like the 70s or something? Absolutely, yeah. And this was something that I didn't really know about until I started doing research for the book that yeah, New York City banned pinball. Yeah, Several other places banned pinball. So you'd have to kind of go to like, you know, like adult shops, things like that. You'd have to go find some CD place or maybe a bar or something to play a pinball game, which is such a weird image in hindsight. I mean, if you go to any place and you see a pinball game now, I mean, honestly, you can associate it with like, you know, oh, this is very family friendly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was very different back in the 90s when the NBA was first encountering arcade games. You know, they'd never worked with that world before, but the NBA headquarters were right near Times Square. And back in the late 80s, early 90s, Times Square is very different from how it is nowadays, where it was very seedy, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, there's shops there, crime there, all kinds of stuff going on there. And they were worried that they would have their image tarnished by being associated with that, by being associated with an arcade game that might be placed in one of those areas. So Midway had to convince them, no, 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 that's different. That was a different kind of era, what you're thinking of. Mm-hmm. This is going to, you know, the other arcades out there. But... Yeah, this is another one of those things that just seems so bizarre in hindsight or so different. But the NBA was very much against the idea of having their license in an arcade. And then nowadays, though, you go to a bowling alley, you'll see like a pop shot with um, an NBA logo on there or an NBA team on there. And it isn't a big deal, but they had a very different perception of arcades and of coin-operated games back then. Yeah. So a lot has changed. Yeah, for sure. I want to pick up on um, a thread in your book. There's a great quote you have on page five. So the the team made the the team at Midway. They made the uh, NBA Jam and they put it in this arcade to test it out how it reacts mm-hmm. in real life. And you write on page five, their arrival, which is this team of nerds basically, their arrival produced zero fanfare. No one really cared or understood who made arcade games, which is true. Customers were only interested in the games themselves, and they were eager to try NBA Jam. That's a valid point because it's like because I'm not a video game guy, so I don't know where half my games come from. <laughs> I enjoy Mortal Kombat. I enjoy these other things. I'm like I don't know who designed it. So why did you decide to spend all this like time and energy trying to figure out and track down all these cool stories about NBA Jam? 
see, I knew that the whole time, even if you know people didn't recognize them from back then, they had enough affection for the video game that people would want to learn these stories too. Just as a huge video game fan myself, I would really love to hear about what went into this game, you know, like who are the people behind it. And then, you know, I originally when I came up with this idea and I pitched it, you know, almost five years ago now, I was thinking like what's a game out there that probably has a really good story? Like what game has like had a real rise and fall? I mean, NBA Jam was on top of the world at one point. And now, you know, we haven't seen an NBA Jam game since, you know, coming up on eight years now, maybe nine years. And just knowing that there was so much potential over there for a good story made me want to dig deeper. So what's amazing is that, you know, you can go online now, you can find people through social media, you can connect to them by sending them an email. There's all kinds of stuff out there. So I was like, I'm going to try everybody I can. So I managed to get, you know, the original NBA Jam team, other people that worked at Midway, you know, fans who were, you know, were so big into the game that they wrote the original strategy guides. And I knew that if I took bits and pieces of all this from their perspective and put it all together, ultimately there probably is going to be a really good story over there. Mm-hmm. So it starts off with like, you know, one piece from here, piece from there. But, you know, I knew that these guys created history and there's only seven of the guys. There was only seven of them on the original NBA Jam team. You know, this is just crazy to me. I mean, NBA Jam, still iconic. Only seven people made it. You had some other people on the hardware side and, you know, some people in management and marketing, but there's only really seven people that made the game. And I was like, man, these seven people have to have some amazing stories. And pretty much all of them had something incredible to share or some really cool detail that I didn't know. So I just had a gut feeling, you know, like there's, it's one of those things out there where there's got to be something big when the game makes a billion dollars and it's an arcade game. I mean, a billion is just crazy. Like thinking about how many times people had to put those quarters in, that just, that image blew my mind. So I was like, I know there's something there. So it was really satisfying to find out there was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I contributed a lot of quarters to that billion dollars as well. I think we all did. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know what's funny is that I didn't actually play the NBA Jam uh, arcade game, like the arcade version, until many, many years after it came out. So I played the, I grew up with the original uh, Sega Genesis version, or the Sega Mega Drive version, mm-hmm. which was the European version, and I, uh, of Tournament Edition, and I didn't play the arcade game until maybe like 10, 15 years ago, something like that, like relatively recent. Like I always knew NBA Jam, and I'd seen the screenshots. But yeah, like it was maybe 15 years ago that I played NBA Jam for the first time in an arcade, which is kind of weird because the whole book is essentially about that yeah. whole arcade scene. But I had that love for it where I was still like, okay, I mean, I might have not played it. Like I might have not been there putting the quarters back in then. Mm-hmm. I would have been if I like if I had gotten the opportunity, I absolutely would have. So it was really fun to go and learn all this new stuff that I didn't know then too. Was this because of you, you growing up in Pakistan? It was, it was, yeah. So you have, you know, we'd have arcades over there. So I grew up in Karachi, huge city, very metropolitan. So you can go out there and you can find different games out there, but you're always way behind the curve in terms of what was coming over to Europe or to North America. So, for example, there was a Pizza Hut near me where they had Street Fighter (laughs) 2, but they didn't have, like, the newer versions of Street Fighter Mm 2. And there was a place that had Mortal Kombat. I think this might have been actually the same Pizza Hut, but there was no Mortal Kombat 2. Chances of finding Mortal Kombat 3, almost zero. Mortal Kombat 4, don't even think about it. And NBA Jam was one of those things where, even though the NBA was super popular back then, it didn't really go over there to, to Pakistan. So you could never find an NBA Jam cabinet anywhere. You couldn't really find much NBA stuff at all. But what was really weird is that Space Jam was huge. Like, mm-hmm. people loved Space Jam yeah. when that came out a few years later. But then NBA Jam, 
like the carts people love with the cartridges i'm sure they sold but the actual arcade games you can find them anywhere so yeah so i had a very different experience growing up as an nba fan than a lot of people who would be able to see it and enjoy it as it was happening i just see so much of this from far away yeah so does that perspective the fact that you are in the culture but not necessarily of the culture like you said you're you're in pizza hut playing street fighter which is kind of an experience that most of us have <laughs> growing up you mm-hmm. just happen to be in pakistan pizza hut when you're doing it like some of your other writing as well like you've written about kids bop uh you've written about the david bowie is exhibition uh for wired magazine yes so, yeah so you seem to have like an outsider almost looking into the culture not necessarily of the culture if that makes sense perspective is that accurate Absolutely, absolutely. No, that's that's a great point. I really, I mean, I enjoy a lot of stuff like that, like seeing stories that haven't been told before, or stories where there's some really interesting material, but it's not from the obvious people. Like, you know, with NBA Jam, of course, like I had to go and get everybody for the book, but I know that there'd be really good stories on the outskirts. Like my favorite story from the book, or one of like my personal favorite, is probably of the guys who wrote the original strategy guide of for NBA Jam, who became such big fans they went and visited Chicago and got a tour of the Midway office. I mean, that was just something that blew my mind, but that was something that wasn't out there at all before. But that was because I was going in and being like, okay, what is a kind of a weird perspective? Like, who's somebody who's nobody's really listening to? So, yeah, I really love going in and doing deep dives on stuff like that. Some other interesting things that I've done would be I wrote about uh, Jim Johnston, who was WWE's music guy for years. Yeah. So he did the music for Stone Cold and for Undertaker and I think Mankind, I mean, everybody and was just there making music for decades, but was one of those people that wasn't always, was never in the spotlight. So I was like, I bet he has a really interesting story. And with the Kids Bop example you mentioned, I was like, man, Kids Bop is one of those things that everybody recognizes because of those annoying commercials. But I don't think anybody knows who's behind that. Like, who are those people actually making Kids Bop? What's going on there? Mm-hmm. So I'm always there. I'm always trying to find, like, unusual stories of people that you wouldn't be necessarily expecting to hear really good material from because sometimes there's some amazing stuff over there and then, you know, it just comes out of nowhere. Like, um, so I, right now the big thing is Tiger King on Netflix, right? Yeah. And that thing is huge. Mm-hmm. And that's all, like when I watched that, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I can't imagine what this documentary filmmaker was thinking when he met these people. And he found the story that nobody else really had before. And now, of course, it's this huge sensation, and everybody's watching and everybody's talking about it. But there was a once upon a time where you'd be like, this is dumb. Why are you going to make this into a movie? Like, why would you spend your time on a series like this? Until you kind of put it all together, like, okay, wow, there's probably an amazing story over here. So, yeah, so sometimes in the places, the weirdest places you look have the best stories. And, you know, you, you never know who you might talk to who might give you some real gem. Like, I was lucky enough to get so many gems for the book. So there's some really incredible stories out there. You just got to have to know where to go digging. Yeah, and as part of the, the story for NBA Jam, is it also just timing? Because this was 1993, right? So Dream Team was 1992. Jordan obviously just took mm-hmm. off. Uh, he started winning championships in 1991, so that kind of established Jordan, and then he went on that epic run with six rings. Uh, we talked about the Orlando Magic as well, uh, that epic team with Penny and Nick Anderson, and they could have rumbled if they had stayed together and stayed healthy. You had Space Jam, which we also mentioned in 1996. Like... The infrastructure for the NBA was being set up, but at the same time, there was all this other stuff that was happening for video games. Like you mentioned message boards, uh, the beginning of the early internet, uh, people were starting to look for cheat codes. There was actual video game journalism that was happening. So it was timing as well, wasn't it? Like to help propel the um, the success of NBA Jam, like the, when they released it? Absolutely. I mean, that was absolutely crucial to it. I mean, and also consider the fact that NBA Jam was developed in Chicago. So those guys were all in Chicago 
watching the Bulls, you know, be on top of the world and watching what was going on with the whole Michael Jordan, you know, rising to being this pop culture icon thing, like what happened there? So I know there was just so much material over there. There was so much interest. I mean, the NBA, like at that point, was really heading way up. I mean, my, like there was, of course, so many amazing stars before him, but he was new in the way that he was so commercialized, so well merchandised, and he was doing all these different things, and all the eyes were on him. And, of course, media was getting better in, in, in terms of information being communicated faster. So NBA Jam was really that perfect storm in some ways. They had the NBA thing going for them. Mm-hmm. The fact that you know Michael Jordan was in Chicago, which is where the team was, and there was, they were obviously they really, really cared about basketball too. On the video game side, arcades were so big back then, and that arcade culture was so huge where you know, if you want to go play the best game, you got to go to the arcade. So the fact that it came out as an arcade game really helped it too. And there was just, yeah, so many things going on over there. But, I mean, yeah, that early 90s, mid-90s NBA is so special. You've got so many good people. I kept thinking, like, man, there's so many great players from back in the day that I really, really love. You know, the, the Jazz were fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you've got... Um, you got the, the Supersonics, you got the Rockets. You can just keep going and going. Charles Barkley. I mean, there's so many that I just forget off the top of my head. Yeah. Patrick Ewing and the Knicks. So, yeah, it was just such a special time. And it was such big personalities, too. Yeah, so picking up on that thread then, on page 20, you write about, um, you have this line that says, you couldn't play as an actual team or players in NBA basketball, another game. But the mere act of having the logo on the box signaled a major development for fans who want to experience NBA action in a new way. The league found a potentially lucrative licensing avenue too. So is is this NBA jam like a video game story or is it in a weird way kind of like a David Stern story? Because he's the one who kind of set up all the infrastructure in the 80s that the 90s infrastructure was able then to take advantage of once Jordan and Stockton and the Knicks and all those other teams, the Sonics came along. They all benefited from that infrastructure that David Stern set up. So is it kind of like a video game story, or do we give a little nod to David Stern for all the work that he did? Yeah, yeah. No, David Stern was just so crucial to pushing it forward. And I know the NBA fans, like, I mean, even though he's passed now, like, you know, when David Stern in his last year, they're just, like, booing David Stern and did this and did that. But, I mean, he's kind of like, the, in some ways, like how Vince McMahon, like, made WWE so big with all these decisions that he made, David Stern was so crucial to making the NBA so big with all those decisions he made. So yeah, to some degree, I would say it is a David Stern story. And in terms of what was going on with the licensing at the time, because I mean, I think NBA jam is like a perfect storm. If you hadn't had that great license um, and a really good video game and all the secret codes that kept people coming back and these other things, I don't think it would have been the same thing. Um, But no, it was uh the NBA was getting like so much popularity at that time and their merchandising was going in some really interesting directions. I mean, I feel like it was inevitable that you find a game that was really good where you could actually see the players and play as the players versus just seeing that name on the box. Mm-hmm. So it was really cool that NBA jam was that game too, aside from being all the other things that it was. And so when you said like you got to talk to the, the team that designed it, the team at Midway, when you talk to them, is it a little bit like talking to like Stan Lean's? Like he didn't realize he was just creating Spider-Man, this bi- this billion-dollar franchise, this billion-dollar character. Like he had no idea. Like you know what I mean? Like Stan Lee just like, all right, we'll just make Spider-Man, Incredible Hulk, Fantastic Four, and I'll go take a nap now. And he didn't realize he was upsetting this whole right. industry <laughs> and created this thing. Was it a little right. bit like that? Where like, yeah, we just making video games, and this was a cool game, and we thought it would do well, and we're just gonna take a nap now. Yeah, yeah. 
I think, you know, I would say for most people, it was more like that. Like in the way that they didn't, they knew it was going to be, it was a good game, but they didn't know it was going to be NBA Jam. And I mean, Tim Kitzrow is really the good example of that. You know, he's the announcer from the game. We did Boom Shakalaka, he's on fire, you know, the nail in the coffin, you know, all those classic lines. That was all Tim Kitzrow. And he was one of those people who ended up being, having his own career elevated because of NBA Jam without him really knowing what was going on, like in terms of how big this was going to be. You know, he accepted this job to do this voiceover for the game. He got something like 1000 maybe 1500 bucks or so for his session for that arcade game. The game blows up, makes a billion dollars, probably more than that. And he was surprised as anybody that, like, it's so big that kids in the arcades are imitating him and they're yelling it across the arcade. And I know that other members of the actual design team didn't, you know, they knew it was going to be it was a good game, but I don't think anybody knew it was going to be as big as it was going to be. The only person I'd say maybe who had a, an inkling uh, was Mark Trammell, who was the lead designer of the game, because he always kind of had a big vision, and he always wanted to do something really big. I'm not sure if he knew NBA Jam was going to be that, that, that big, but he really wanted to, like, make NBA Jam as good as it could be. Like, he wanted it to be one of those games that stood out. And I think that's one of the reasons that you go back to so many of the, the games that, the, that he made. I mean, he made NBA Jam, NFL Blitz. He made games like Smash TV. MLB Slugfest, all these games that people still really love because he had that big vision. But in terms of NBA Jam, like making a billion dollars and it being this huge, basically household name in the 90s, I don't think that anybody really saw, saw that coming. Tramel might have been the closest, but even then, I don't think anybody really knew what they were getting into with it. Yeah, can you just give us like a uh, a broad strokes a little bit of like how the video game business works? You talk a little bit about it in the book, like so Midway comes up with this NBA Jam game and they put it in the uh, classic arcade cabinets, and then they got to drop it off to mm -hmm. arcades. And so, what kind of happens after that? Yeah, so yeah, so the so what Midway was do is they would create the cabinets and then try to sell them on over to the to the arcade owners slash distributors. So there'd be this distributor network out there, too, that would be basically having an inventory of arcade games that it would send out to different arcades. So let's say, you know, you're over at Sammy's Arcade, and I'm sending over a an arcade cabinet to you. Well, the whole goal with this is that I want you to buy my – if I'm Midway, I want you to buy my cabinet so that you'll make a lot of money off of it and then hopefully keep buying more Midway cabinets, which will in turn expose people to more Midway games and then, you know, build Midway's brand and whatnot. But these, the way that it worked with, was a lot of, um, was like a distributor system. So the big thing was, you know, I, like, let's say there's not even Sammy's Arcade. Let's say they're saying the distributor. I send it over to Sammy's distributor, we send it over to Sammy's Arcade, and then take that cabinet and then send it someplace else. So it was kind of a complex network of these people who would have these games in their arcades. Some of them would own them, some of them wouldn't. But that famous billion-dollar figure, Midway didn't make that money. Mm -hmm. The arcade owners made that money, which is why the arcade owners were so excited about Midway games, and that's why they kept you know, you know, stalking them, like, oh, okay, we'll put NFL Blitz in there. We'll put NBA Jam. We'll put Mortal Kombat 1, 2, 3, whatever. It's because they knew they'd make a lot of money because they were really good games, and they really grabbed people's attention. But the business was kind of interesting in that way of, like, you know, you're making this, this huge, big game and then hoping that somebody's going to buy it. And you're not even selling it direct to consumer. You're selling, you're selling it on over to people who are going to then give it, present it to the consumer. So definitely kind of a different business model than what you see nowadays where, you know, you get a video game, a home video game, 
it's going from the company eventually to you, as opposed to that where you're sending the game out to people who you want to buy the game, who will then let other people play the game. So kind of convoluted, yeah. but it was kind of a, it was a really interesting world to, to learn about how they did this back in the day. And speaking of business models, Michael Jordan was not in the game, or technically wasn't in the game. He did end up in the game eventually. Is that true? That is true, yes. Yeah, so he was not in the original game. It was always a licensing issue. He didn't want to put his likeness in the game. I'm sure he had some kind of special clause because of how big he was at the time. So he would be separate from the NBA Players Association, which is why if you go back to even that first version of NBA Jam, you'll see somebody like Shaq in there who wasn't there in a future game because he became a bigger star, or you'll see Charles Barkley in there who was also not in a future game because he ended up taking his license elsewhere. But, you know, you won't see Michael Jordan there because Michael Jordan, you know, from pretty much early on, knew that his brand was bigger than the NBA's in some way. Like, he was different. He was separate from them. So, yeah, so he made it so that he would not have his image license for the game and it would cost Midway way too much money to put Michael Jordan in there and it would not be to their benefit. I mean, he'd spend so much money putting him in there and it really wouldn't make that much of a difference overall um, in terms of the sales or how well the game would do. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of weird to me that, you know, he's the most famous star of the 90s, but he's not in actually one, one of the most famous games in the 90s. In fact, he's not, probably not in most famous games from the 90s when it comes to basketball. Um, so that was always kind of, kind of crazy to me, but he ended up being a big NBA Jam fan anyways. Uh, there was a story that a couple of people told me, which was great, which is that Michael Jordan's reps reached out to Midway and said, hey, we want a special version of the game for Michael that's got him in it. And not only that, but Michael's friend, Gary Payton, who was on the Seattle Supersonics and had not yet appeared in an NBA Jam game. Keep in mind, he was in NBA Jam Tournament Edition, not the original NBA Jam. He wanted to be in the game. And then Ken Griffey Jr. also wanted to be in the game. So, like, there was custom versions. There was custom version out there with Michael Jordan, Gary Payton, Ken Griffey Jr. That's just so weird to me. Like, the fact that those three guys are all on the special version of the game that other people can't play. But it was so big at the time that if Michael Jordan, I mean, Michael Jordan asked, hey, can you make a custom version of the game for me? I mean, if you're midway, you're absolutely going to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's crazy to think that, yeah, Michael Jordan might have had an NBA jam in his house wow. game, but nobody else gets to play it. Yeah. He would have probably been upset, too, if they kind of given him uh, like a lower score on some of the, the ratings and the skills. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this is, this is one of the fun stories I've learned throughout the book, which was, uh, or throughout writing the book which was, uh, so of course, the, the Knicks were huge back then, and Patrick Ewing was the star of the Knicks. And there's an artist on, on NBA Jam named Tony Goski who was in an airport gift shop, and he met Patrick Ewing over there. And he says, oh, hey, I'm the guy who did the faces for NBA Jam. I'm the actual artist. And then Patrick Ewing kind of jokingly like choked him or like wrung his neck and said, so you're the reason I look like that in the game. <laughs> because he didn't like the way his likeness looked in the game. Yeah. The fact that like Patrick Ewing knew what NBA Jam was, not only that, but it was upset by the fact that it wasn't a good likeness. Mm-hmm. I mean, that also speaks volumes to how big NBA Jam was. I mean, you've got the players themselves, you know, taking note of stuff like that. So, but yeah, I'm sure if his stats were low, Jordan would have been upset. And I've heard, I'm sure there's players nowadays who, if a new NBA Jam was made and their stats weren't good, they would be very upset too. Yeah. And one of the highlights, too, like uh, when you're talking about the popularity of the game was the, um, the expressions and the announcer, Tim Kitzerow, you already mentioned him. And like you do a great job by naming each of the chapters after one of his phrases, like swish and he's on fire. My, my impression's terrible. I apologize. 
But um, my favorite always expression was always the nail in the coffin. <laughs> Do you have a particular favorite expression? That was so good. Yeah. Oh God, I love them all. But I, but yeah, it's it's a cop out to say I love them all. Mm-hmm. But personally, I loved Swish because it's so simple. Swish, yeah. like the way he would say it was always so good to me. Um, there's one that I was thinking about naming a chapter after, which was Kaboom. Oh, yeah. Not the best impression, but he would say Kaboom. I used to love that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll use Kaboom for something else someday. Um, so Kaboom didn't make it in, but man, I loved all those. The nail in the coffin was so good. Mm-hmm. And then I also really loved when there would be like, there would, the game would almost be over, and he would say, one minute to go. And man, I just loved the way he used to say, one minute to go. It would just get my blood pumping. Like, yeah. okay, one minute to go. Here we go. He got me hyped up. <laughs> so he was one of such a special part of the game. I mean, can you imagine uh, an NBA Jam without his commentary? Like, it would just be a totally different experience to not yeah. have him there or not have him ever touch the game. But, yeah, Tim Kitzer was so special. And it blew my mind, you know, another thing I learned throughout making uh, the book, which was that Acclaim almost cut him out of the home games uh, over a, a money issue, which was a pretty small sum of money overall. You know, Tim Kitzer wanted to make $3,000, I think, mm-hmm. as opposed to $1,500 that he made on NBA Jam for recording the home games, which $3,000 isn't that much money if the game is going to sell a gazillion copies. Right. But Acclaim at first said no. And it would just blew my mind thinking about there was almost a time when NBA Jam in the home versions did not exist with this iconic, iconic voice, which means that everybody's experience with NBA Jam would have been different, you know? Mm-hmm. Like people went to the arcade would have remembered Boom Shakalaka and all, but the people at home would have had a different impression of it. So that's just so crazy to me. But yeah, Tim was definitely one of the, the special weapons that the game had, one of those secret weapons. And he, uh, he still goes to conventions and still does this now, and he'll leave people voicemails and stuff like that. He'll call me up and he'll leave me a voicemail and say, boom, shakalaka, check to the rim. And I'll just get so hyped up, like, yeah. oh, I, I want to be professional, but I'm a kid again when you, when you do that. Yeah. So, yeah, he was such a special part of the game. I loved his expressions, man. I also like, too, that they also included booing, too. Like, if you bricked a couple of shots and stuff like that, or if somebody got the ball stolen off you, you got booed which was also part of the realism <laughs> of the game. Like, even the crowd is against you. You suck so bad. Right. I mean, I love, yeah, I love that booing in the game. And there's a few subtle things like that, like the booing and the way that you can always hear the sneakers squeaking around the court. Mm-hmm. I mean, nowadays, if you hear the sneakers in a basketball game, that's not a big deal. Everybody's got that. Yeah. But in 993, when you're the first game to have that out there, or one of the first, I mean, that's just mind-blowing that it's actually sound like you can close your eyes and it kind of sounds like an NBA game. So, yeah, the uh, the sound guy on that, John Hay, um, was another really interesting character who I talked to who is kind of an unsung hero. I mean, he made the classic NBA Jam theme and he was res- responsible for a lot of the effects and he was the one who brought Tim on board um, to be part of the game. And his work was just stellar. So, yeah, so many great little sound effects and the music over there. I mean, NBA Jam just had everything going for it. The good the good music, the good graphics, the fun gameplay, the good license. Um, so, I mean, in some ways, there was no wonder it was a hit, but, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. As we're wrapping up, uh, the book is called NBA Jam. It's on a label called Boss Fight Books. What is Boss Fight mm-hmm. Books for people that don't, that don't know? Yeah, Boss Fight Books is a publisher out of Los Angeles that does exclusively does books about individual video games. So they'll do one book that's just about Super Mario Brothers 2 from one author, then another book about Super Mario Brothers 3 from a different author. 
And then they just released one about the game Postal, which is an old PC game. Oh, yeah. Um, they've done books about Galaga. Yeah, like all kinds of different uh, games within the series. Um, they've got um, indie games like Spelunky. They've got weird games that you might not have heard of, like Bible Adventures. They've got like they've got a really interesting array of, uh, of games over there, World of Warcraft. There's a Kingdom Hearts 2 book. Um, but, yeah, they're based out of Los Angeles, and they had an open call back in 2015, I think it was, when I reached out to them, yeah. And, um, you know, they were saying that they were looking for pitches about different ideas for uh, for new books. And I was like, okay, I really want to be part of the series. It's such a cool concept. I'd love to write about one video game for a book. I really wanted to do a book no matter what. Um, in fact, I pitched a couple of music books before me and Jan came along that both got rejected. It happens, but originally I was trying to get into music writing, and then, oh, this new opportunity opened up, so I'm so glad they accepted it, and with accepting NBA Jam and becoming the first sports game in their series, you know, it's the first lot of things, the first midway game, um, second arcade game overall, I'm in good company with this, this book called Galaga, but they've got a really interesting concept, and yeah, the books are nice and lightweight, mm -hmm. uh, relatively cheap, yeah, NBA Jam's only 15 bucks for the actual paperback, and um, you can buy their digital books for real cheap, too. So really cool publisher out of Los Angeles uh, over at BossFightBooks.com. We're going to go back. We're going to kick it old school in terms of nostalgia because they're, um, ESPN and Netflix are dropping that Michael Jordan documentary about the 1990s Bulls uh, called The Last Dance. Are you looking forward to checking that out? Oh, oh my God. Are you kidding me? When I heard about the, the day getting pushed up, I actually entered a little note on my phone calendar to remind <laughs> myself of the day the last dance would be on because I'm absolutely going to be there for that. I am so excited for that. Yeah, absolutely. As a 90s NBA fan, I'm excited, but knowing the hype around this particular documentary, mm -hmm. I'm especially excited. And the fact that there isn't much else going on, I am so there for that. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. I think it's going to reignite a lot of the debates of whether Jordan's great or Kobe or uh, LeBron and all those kind of arguments. Yeah. Oh, and for people of that era who, like, love Michael Jordan, actually what's funny is I, as a kid, I used to really dislike Michael Jordan. I actually hated him for a little time, like a period of time when I was, like, 8, 9, 10, 11. Mm -hmm. So by the time Space Jam came out, I was – I'd kind of turned a corner, and I was like, I liked him. But he would always beat the teams I loved. Like, I loved the Jazz, and he would just demolish the Jazz. Oh, yes. I loved the Magic, mm -hmm. but the Magic would never get to be a champion uh, or a championship team while the Jordan Bulls were out there. You know, I loved I loved all of them. You had the Jazz, the Supersonics, the Rockets, the Suns. I loved anybody that was not Michael Jordan back then because he would just – I was like, what are you doing? They're beating everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, yeah, you recognize how good he is. So the people that saw him back then, I know that it's seared in their minds that they're more likely to believe that Michael Jordan's the greatest. But so much of that is de dependent on when you saw you – know, what you saw when you saw it. This is a tangent, but, like, the Sonics and the, um, the, the Knicks got to the finals – and the Suns, the Charles Barkley Suns, those teams, they just about had it. And if they were playing in a slightly different era or when, in that baseball year when Jordan was uh, playing baseball, like they might have been able to rumble a little bit more. But like they, they had it. They were just on the like right on the edge. And it just unfortunately because of circumstances or whatever it was, but they weren't able to complete the mission and get a championship. But they had it. Yeah, oh, that's what killed me. They were so close, so close, yeah. But, I mean, that's just how good Jordan was. He would just come on through. And, I mean, the double three-peat, that just blows my mind. Mm -hmm. And it was so, you know, when the, the Warriors got that, uh, you know, those, a few years ago, started getting more, cha you know, multiple championships. I got, like, little shades of the Bulls. Yeah. But they didn't have – even as amazing as Steph Curry is, 
like Michael Jordan was like on a different level in terms of what he represented and the way that he led everything. So, yeah, man, those other teams were so close. I just wanted them to beat the Bulls so bad. <laughs> just like, oh, please do it. And they never did. I mean, they yeah. couldn't close it. But, hey, that's why that's why he's one of the greatest. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the greatest, the the book is called NBA Jam, and it's a lot of fun and celebrates the classic arcade game. Where can people find other writing or more information about NBA Jam? Because you got a really cool Twitter account. Yeah, yeah. So check me out on Twitter. Look up twitter.com slash NBA Jam book, or you just Google NBA Jam book. You'll find an Amazon link. You'll find Boss Fight's website. You'll find my Twitter account. So, yeah, on Twitter, uh, I post all kinds of old video game footage and art, things like that. I love old arcades, so... I'm like showing old bits of uh, showing bits of old games, and um, all kinds of cool NBA Jam related finds. Like I've I actually still have some more stuff that I haven't put out there yet. That's that's pretty cool. Um, but you know I've shown like clips of the uh, the developers actually filming the game, you know, in their blue screen studio. And one one clip I posted, I think this is like last November or so, that was of Godzilla and Bart Simpson, like little Godzilla and mm-hmm. Bart Simpson toys that the Midway team had, that they were filming against the blue screen background to put in NBA Jam. So they ended up not putting in the game probably because, like, you know, Godzilla and Bart Simpson's, or the Simpsons owners would have sued the hell out of them. Mm -hmm. But it's so cool to know that there's footage out there of stuff like this. So, so yeah, so I'm always into digging up fun stuff like that. So, yeah, come hang out with me on Twitter, at NBA Jam Book, or, yeah, just Google it, and you'll find all kinds of cool stuff. All right, I think this is the nail in the coffin. We covered uh, Street Fighter Two and Pizza Hut. Uh, we covered '90s NBA. We covered Michael Jordan, the the game, of course, and the NBA Jam in your book. And we covered Big Head Mode. I think we covered <laughs> all the major things, didn't we? That's everything. Yeah, that's a big checklist. Yeah, we got it all out of the way. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out and uh, talking to me about the game. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Is there anything else that we missed or I should have talked about or brought up? I think we covered a lot. No, no, that was great. Those are such fun questions, and I appreciate the fact that you read the book inside it. Thank you so much for checking it out, man. I, I appreciate it. I'm so glad that you dug it. Thank you. Have a good night. All right. Take care of yourself, Sammy. All right. Peace. that was my conversation with Rayan Ali and the book of course is called NBA Jam. Welcome to Notes Noteworthy. I'm going to start with a question. What's the statute of limitations on coin fishing? It's nothing I did per se but I sure benefited from it. Back in the days of my reckless youth there was a um, quick stop convenience store, kind of quickie mark uh, behind our high school. They had an Indiana Jones pinball machine which is still one of the greatest pinball machines of all time. And they had NBA Jam, along with Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter 2. In hindsight, I probably violated a number of loitering rules as well. Somebody in our gang. It felt like a gang. We were a bunch of loud, sarcastic punks. I mean, we couldn't be cool if we went out on a fall day without a jacket. Had the X-Men ability to coin fish. This is when you tape a long string to a quarter or loop a string through a small hole in the quarter. You lower the quarter into the slot ever so gently like an all-black dress Tom Cruise in that first Mission Impossible movie. Don't make a sound. And in the video game slot that receives the quarter, you deftly flick your wrist up and down 
to sort of like dunk the quarter, like a chicken nugget. You do this enough times, you can fool the machine into 50 free plays for the price of one quarter. That's a good deal. It's incredible how simple the 90s seemed. In this interview with Rayan Ali, he brings up a crucial point. NBA Jam instantly sparks warm, nostalgic, good vibrations. It's associated with good times and friendship and hanging out and most importantly, 90s NBA. All the interviews in this book, from Shaq to DJ Jazzy Jeff to the design team at Midway, offer an unvarnished authenticity and an infectious passion for the game. Really, short of having the one year as narrator, it is hard to articulate in any sort of meaningful way just how profound and incredible 90s NBA is and was and will always will be. 1990s NBA was defined by sound. Marv Albert exclaiming, A spectacular move by Michael Jordan in 1991. John Tasha's transcendent NBA anthem, Brown Ball Rock. The Alan Parsons Project song, Cirrus. Finally, just as important as all little sounds is Tim Kitsuro, the scornful voice of NBA Jam, who gave us the ability to articulate so much of what we were seeing on games broadcast on NBC. He's on fire! The nail on the coffin! Boom shakalaka! And so many more comical and handy expressions that fit neatly into real life. Honestly, these are not phrases so much as free time machines to take us back to a glorious period of the NBA. On page 5 of NBA Jam, Rayan writes their arrival. He's talking about the nerds at Midway, the designers. Their arrival produced zero fanfare. No one really cared or understood who made arcade games. Customers were only interested in the games themselves, and they were eager to try NBA Jam. Rayan Ali is right. I, like the general public, don't know where Mortal Kombat came from or how Street Fighter vs. Marvel happened. But as you begin to read the book, you clearly spent years researching. The stories are captivating because the characters are compelling. Thankfully, the seven designers at Midway made significant and critical decisions along the way. For example, did you know that Big Head Mode was going to be the game's default mode? That would have never worked. Often, some of our best pop culture was created and designed with little understanding of how they would impact our lives and stir our imaginations. Stan Lee had no way of knowing just how big Spider-Man or the X-Men would become. With Kirby and Ditko, he designed and released them into the world and kind of hoped for the best. They were the best. This is a wonderfully dense biography covering a variety of topics. Do you like NBA Jam and have many feelings? Read this book. Do you like 90s NBA and Michael Jordan and have many feelings? Read this book. Want to learn about the video game business? I suppose you might have video game business feelings too. Read this book. You miss arcades with all their noise and optimism and friendships? Those are feelings too. Read this book. I appreciated the way back playback and that a core element of the 90s was recognized and in a way enshrined in this NBA Jam book. I don't know if they'll make NBA Jam games in the future. Perhaps it's good to leave it the way it is. It's hard to imagine future editions will go kaboom. Do you have NBA Jam memories? Reach out to me. I am Sam Yunan. You can talk to me online at MyPalSammy for IG, MyPalSammy for Facebook, and MyPalSammy for Twitter. This was such a fun episode. Just kind of kicking it old school and talking about NBA Jam and old school 90s. Uh, wow. What a treat to do this stuff.
thank you so much for listening to me in a Netflix world. Seriously, just like, especially because Netflix now has The Last Dance. Go watch The Last Dance. Memorize it. Study it. NBA Jam, yo.